Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to be going through some different kind of disparate blog posts that I put out. I'm going to read them as different sections. This is somewhat of a episode on um, Calvinistic musings, um, some different arguments put forth for compatibilism, uh, some objections to libertarian freedom, answering the question, how can a Calvinist know that they are saved, and so on, um, and just some various things that have come up. If you disagree with me, you might consider them ramblings, but, you know, who knows? Uh, if you like this content or any other content we put out here on the Freed Thinker podcast, please consider becoming a sponsor. You can follow us on Patreon. You can click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or anywhere where great podcast content can be found. Now, in this episode, like I said, I'm going to go through some different kind of disparate musings, uh, Calvinistic musings, uh, if you will. Um, and I'm not going to go through a lot of, well, I'm not really going to go through any of the rejoinders or rejections to any of them, because to be honest, there haven't really been any that are of substance. Um, some of this, I think, is unique to me, so it's somewhat novel. I recognize that that can be good or bad, and I'm happy to be have any of the novel ones proven wrong. Um, but so far, not many have attempted to do so uh, outside of just kind of a Facebook, well, you know, you, you, you Calvinasties are just dumb and stupid. Uh, you know, well, don't you, don't you just know that, that uh, Calvinism just makes us robots and, and nonsense like that. So uh, I'm looking at some of my non-Calvinist friends listening, possibly, you know, I'm looking at you, Braxton Hunter and, uh, you know, Eric Hernandez, Michael Jones, any, any of you, any of you friends of mine, uh, good godly brothers, uh, who are Molinists or Arminians or who affirm some type of libertarian freedom? I'd definitely be interested in hearing your hearing your all feedback. Uh, you know, reasonable and 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 well understood feedback. Um, so, with that said, let's just dive right into this episode, dealing with uh, some Calvinistic musings. Hope you enjoy the show. from inspiration for compatibilism. According to the standard Protestant or evangelical view on inspiration, that is verbal plenary inspiration, uh, the inspiration of God by the scriptures, by the spirit brought about the, that the spirit brought about the exact text and wording such that what the authors of the various scriptural texts wrote could properly be called God's word. However, at the same time, we Protestants can rightly say that Paul wrote Romans based on his own beliefs, personality, style, history, autobiography, and that inspiration is neither via direct, uh, direct dictation nor merely of general concepts, nor a kind of sentimental quote-unquote inspiration like Shakespeare being inspired by a summer's day. There is concurrence where God determines the exact wording of the scriptures while the authors are also freely writing what they desire to write. 
I think this is a good example of compatibilism, or at least an argument in that direction. I can say that the Pentateuch is the direct word of God and that Moses should be praised as a literary genius for his composition of Genesis. Whether we think that this is by supervenience or concurrence or some other thesis, the question can be asked, what it, it, uh, was it God who determined the content of his word or the author's? To which uh, it is correctly responded, both and. That, that is, yes, it was God who determined it and it was the author's. Now, many incompatibilists attempt to make the principled objection that if God causally determines the outcome of some action, that the agent is not free in their actions. Inspiration seems to provide a clear exception to the principled objection that shows the assumption of libertarian forms of incompatibilism must be false. A Molinist may attempt to say that God merely foreknew what Paul would write and actualized a world where Paul wrote what God would have wanted him to write had he intervened. This poses two problems. Why think such a world is feasible? Maybe the Bible is the best that God could get in a feasible world so that it's his plan B, still a plan, but not his perfect word to be sure. And why not plan C or D or double ABB? Uh, this type of feasible world response that Molinus gets seems to cut both ways. Number two, the Molinus would need to give the metaphysics of how that is a concept of inspiration of the biblical text specifically and not of any other text. For surely God equally foreknew and actualized the world with war and peace written in the way that we have it. If the exact metaphysics of the Molinus accounts for the Bible in precisely the same way that it does for war and peace and the devil's Bible, then in what conceptually significant way can we say that the Bible is uniquely uh, uh, is inspired in a special way or that it is, properly speaking, the word of God? To the incompatibilist listening to this, based on the numerous objections to compatibilism, that it undermines freedom, that it removes the ability to be praised or blameworthy, that, uh, that if we are determined, we cannot be said to be rational and so forth. Does the fact that God exhaustively determined the scriptures, and, and again, here, I'm, I'm assuming most of my listeners are Protestant and would, ver would affirm a kind of verbal plenary inspiration. Does, does the fact that God has exhaustively determined in a, in a plenary verbal inspiration type of way the scriptures, does that mean that Paul and the other authors were not free, praiseworthy, or rational, etc., in their composition of their texts? Or, to escape the problem, do you then feel the need to alter your view of inspiration to affirm either a dictation view or an aesthetic inspiration view to maintain your principled objection to compatibilism? Argument from orthodoxy for soft determinism or compatibilism. Let a possible world be understood as a manner or state in which the actual world could have been, the set of propositions that are or would be true in each possible world. Thus, world W1 will be an expression of the set of all propositions N that, if, that, that are true if W1 was the actual world, such that if W1 was the actual world, then the set of propositions N1, N2, N3, N4, all the way down to Nx would be true. 
Let me give a quick argument on why I think that any and all orthodox conceptions of God as an omnimax being who is the creator of the actual world will necessarily entail, at minimum, a kind of soft determinism. Okay, to start. God created or actualized, either weakly or strongly, it doesn't matter for the argument, the actual world, and let's call that W1. In actualizing W1, God has created or actualized all propositions that are true, which are labeled as a set W1. And for reference, I do not mean that God had to directly create or actualize. It could have been weekly. Again, that is not salient for the argument that I'll be posing here. Now, let N666 be some instance of evil that obtains in only W1. God, in creating or actualizing W1, has determined that N666 will obtain and cannot fail to obtain. For if N666 failed to obtain, then W1 would no longer actually be W1, but some other world, say W1939, where not N666 would obtain. If this were the case, God would have intended to create W but 1, but would have failed to do so when W1939 obtained, contrary to his intention. This would result in a God who is not omnipotent. In addition, God, in actualizing or creating W1, at the moment of creation, let us call that T1, foreknew that N666 would obtain because he was intending to create W1. Therefore, if not N666 obtained, then God's knowledge would be incorrect. Even if not 666 did not obtain, but had a real metaphysical possibility to obtain, that would mean that it would be possible for N666 to fail to obtain in the actual world. This means that God's foreknowledge at T1 could have possibly been wrong. If God's foreknowledge could even possibly be wrong, then God cannot know that he knows, since it would be precisely the thing that he would not know. That is, the the failure of his knowledge would be the very thing that he, in principle, categorically could not know. And so, therefore, God could not know that he knows, and this would result in a God who is not omniscient. The only consistent way to maintain the orthodox view of God as the Omnimax creator is to affirm that God has actualized or created W1 and in doing so has determined unalterably whatsoever comes to pass as true propositions in the W1 which have no metaphysically meaningful ability to fail to come to pass. As such, God has determined N1 through Nx that are true given his creation or actualization, again, either strongly or weakly, of W1, as opposed to any other propositions that are true in any other possible world. This results in, at minimum, soft determinism. Therefore, I have argued orthodox Christian conceptions of an omnimax being who is the creator of the world logically results in, at minimum, soft determinism. Sovereignty and Conversational Confusion This is a corrective and a challenge for both Reformed Calvinists and non-Calvinists to be clearer when we talk about sovereignty with each other. I'm not going to here be arguing that Reformed theology or Calvinism is true or non-Calvinism is false. Rather, I'm going to try to untie part of the Gordian knot that exists between us in how we understand each other. 
Often, the Reformed Calvinists will accuse, sometimes rightly, the non-Calvinists of having a deficient view of sovereignty, while the non-Calvinists will hear the Reformed Calvinists talk about the implications of sovereignty as being some form of compatibilism, which entails determinism, and then fail to make the necessary disambiguation in Reformed Calvinistic thought between sovereignty, predestination, and determinism. Sovereignty, on the Reformed view, is rather mundane. Sovereignty simply has to do with God's right to rule over all of his creation, every facet of it. God is the sovereign over all things, not most things. God is almighty, not mostly mighty. He has the right as king over all things. This is why in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it talks about sovereignty as, quote, He has most sovereign dominion over all things to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth, end quote. Sovereignty then has the do, to do with the right as sovereign overall. However, this is where the disambiguation in Reformed theology comes in and starts to cause confusion for those who do not properly draw appropriate distinctions. Sovereignty means that God is the sovereign over all of his creation. This is why the Bible can talk about God working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Notice that all things are worked out and are under the oversight and purpose of God. Not most things, not some things, not the things that he can control, but not the free will decisions that we do that, we do that go against his plan all things. Nothing happens in his kingdom that is not permitted by him, and all things are under the distinct uh, the direction and the control of his plan and his purpose. His sovereign right as king of kings and lord of lord, lords plan and purpose. The confusion arises at this point for many reformed Calvinists and non-Calvinists alike. Because on the reformed view, we believe that God has predestined and predetermined all things because God is sovereign. We will often state God's predestining of all things just as, definitionally, God's sovereignty. God sovereignly predestines all things, but his predestination is not synonymous with his sovereignty. His sovereignty is dispositional. He has the right to rule over all. His predestination is active. He acts because he is sovereign over all. God can predestine rightly, at least in part, because he is sovereign, not vice versa. This is further compounded because of how Reformed Christians will often critique non-Reformed positions. For example, when a misinformed Arminian, misinformed because Arminian does, Arminianism does not historically affirm libertarian freedom, or an SBC provisionist affirm libertarian freedom and say that if God predestined the person or acted irresistibly on the will, that God would then be quote-unquote controlling in the directly causal sense or the quote author of sin in some way that God is not permitted to do so, the reformed person will see this, per this, this non-Calvinist person as saying that there is an area of God's own creation that he is not sovereign over, that he does not have the absolute right as king over and to do by, for, and upon it whatever he desires to do. So while the libertarian may think that they are attacking predestination or determinism, the reformed Calvinist hears the objection as assuming some area that is not under God's sovereign kingship. Thus, an objection against determinism is given a rejoinder that the person is actually objecting to sovereignty. 
This then fuels the confusion. The non-Calvinist will then hear the Reformed theology just defines sovereignty as determinism because that's the type of response they're getting to the objection that they think they're making. This is further fueled by how each person understands the word control. Think of how I can say nothing at work is out of my control and I control the character in the video game with the joystick. In the first, I may mean that there is nothing that goes on in my office that is without my notice or permission or power to direct, fix, acts upon, anticipate, etc. It may even mean everything that happens is planned and directed by me. However, no one would understand that to mean that I am the primary causal agent meticulously and directly causing everything to happen. I am not the efficient or material cause of every last thing. And yet, when I am controlling a character, I am just such a cause. When the Reformed Calvinist talks about nothing being out of God's control, we mean it as an analog to the first kind of the use of the term because we're compatibilists. We're not hard determinists. We understand that God, though the, the first mover, works in sovereign administration through the means of secondary causal conditions and agents. He determines whatsoever comes to pass, but that is providentially worked out via means. However, because our critics in this discussion are incompatibilists of the libertarian variety and often fail to disambiguate between external criticisms and internal ones, they'll take an externalist critique of compatibilism's soft determinism, which thinks it is unavoidably and definitionally entails incompatibilism's hard determinism, and then use that as if that is what Reformed Calvinism affirms and move into an internal criticism of saying that on Reformed Calvinism, God controls all things in the second sense of the term. This, however, because it has moved from an external critique to an internal critique invalidly, not only begs the question of incompatibilistic libertarian freedom, but it also sets up a straw man of Reformed Calvinism that is different from what we actually affirm. Notice then what a simple definitional usage of a term like sovereignty can do and how the role it plays in dialogues can so quickly make communication derail. We need to be far more self-aware of how we use and understand terms and how other people from within their own systems use and understand those same terms. Without it, we will simply be in a grand narrative of talking past each other. Can a Calvinist be certain of their salvation? An important thing to note is that we do not place our hope or faith in our election. We place our faith and hope in Jesus Christ and him crucified as a fulfillment of the good promises of God. He has promised good to us, and by our faith in him, we cling to his promises. So, why do I have assurance? Because God is good and faithful and has given certain means of grace to his people, word and sacrament, sanctification, and the inner witness of the Spirit to me as some examples. We should not conflate a strong and confident assurance with a kind of epistemic certainty that is not susceptible to solipsism. All views are susceptible to some manner of solipsism. I do not need to know that I know that I know that I know that I am electing Christ. I need to know that God has made promises to his people and described what his people will experience upon true conversion and have given means of grace and assurance to his people to build them up in the faith. The grounds of assurance are cumulative, but rooted in God's own covenant love and fidelity. We could ask, 
How does the Arminian or the Provisionist know that they have the right kind of faith that will finish the work of redemption and please God enough to make him his provision actual for them? How do they know that they know that they know that they know that they won't walk away from it tomorrow if tragedy strikes and be removed from the body forever? How do they then know that they are not a butterfly dreaming? The question before us is already a poorly formed objection to Calvinism. Inherent in the question is a kind of decisional theology advocated by semi-Pelagians like Finney and company. It looks to you and your own sincerity and conviction as the grounds for your assurance and hope. This is the exactly wrong place to look. We do not look to ourselves as the final cause for our hope, but rather we look to Christ. We do not look to our continued obedience, but to his obedience. Tim Chalice writes of this kind of baseless assurance when he says, quote, When you seek assurance of your salvation, where do you look? Will you take refuge in the sincerity of your prayer? Will you comfort yourself by saying, I meant it with all my heart? If you take refuge in your own sincerity or in the passion you felt years ago when you prayed a prayer, you are building your assurance on shaky ground. End quote. And let me add, if you look to the conviction and passions of your prayer even from this morning, the ground is just as shaky. The Reformed tradition is gritty and real and true to life. It recognizes that our assurance, honestly, may wax and wane. We may go through dark nights of the soul. To try and demand a kind of epistemic certainty of Calvinism that is beyond all real Christian experience or else throw it in the waste bin is, to, is the height of special pleading as an objection. To set the standard of expectation so high, beyond what even the objector's own theological system would permit, is an obscenely uncharitable and flat-out naive way to engage in theological reflection. We can ask these questions of epistemology of any view. There is nothing special or unique about Reformed soteriology in this regard to this manner of solipsism. We can have reasonable assurance by looking to God, <coughs> his promises and covenant-keeping nature, his glory in the finished work of Christ, and pressed to our souls by the word and sacrament, church, and spirit. We continue to work out our salvation, or the assurance thereof, with fear and trembling, but we know that God has said that those who love him love his word, love his body, love their neighbors, mortify the flesh, grow in prayer, display the fruit of the Spirit more as they mature, and long for deeper fellowship with God. Without some kind of defeater for the faithfulness of God, the work of the Spirit in my life, and the promises that accompany them, I have no reason to doubt my inclusion in the people of God. Simply asking, yeah, but how do you know that you know that you know, is not an objection. It's posturing. Look to Christ and his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and the promises of God for his people that accompany them, and you will have assurance because God cannot lie. But you can. If you navel gaze and look to your own faithfulness, you will have no reason for hope and only cause for despair. So now we can move on to the grounds of assurance. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 18, quote, This certainty is not a bare, conjectural, or probable persuasion grounded upon fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the, we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption, end quote. Similarly, the Belgic Confession says in Article 24, quote, So we would always be in doubt, tossed back and forth without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be tormented constantly if they did not rest on the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior, end quote. And the Canons of Dort says in Article 12 and 13 of Section 1, quote, Assurance of their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to, to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure. Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves, with spiritual joy and holy delight, the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as the true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. In their awareness and assurance of this election, God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God, to adore the fathomless depths of God's mercy, to cleanse themselves and give fervent love to, in return to the one who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and reflection upon it make God's children lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured. By God's just judgment, this does usually happen to those who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it, but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen. So we see several sources for assurance. We can see from the Westminster points, quote, to the divine truth of the promise of salvation, end quote. And the Belgic Confession specifies, quote, the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior, end quote, upon which those promises rest. Westminster cites these scriptures for its support. Hebrews 6.17, quote, In the same way God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise that his purpose was unchangeable, and so he intervened with an oath, so that we who have found refuge in him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us through two unchangeable things, since it is impossible for God to lie. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain. Westminster continues, quote, The inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, it's, quote, specified by Dort as a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for sin, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, and so on, end quote. And Westminster cites 2 Peter 1.4, Through these things he has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent promises, so that by means of what was promised you may become partakers of the divine nature, after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. For by doing this, you will never stumble into sin. For thus an entrance into eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. 
1 John 2, 3, quote, Now by this we know that we have come to know God, if we could be keep his commandments. 1 John 3, 14, quote, We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. The, ones who, the one who does not love remains in death. 2 Corinthians 1.12, quote, For our reason, for confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that with pure motives and sincerity, which are from God, not by human wisdom, but by the grace of God, we conducted ourselves in the world and all the more toward you. Westminster wraps it up by saying, quote, The testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. Again, referring to Romans 8, 15 to 16, quote, Which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption? Citing other verses like Ephesians 1, 13, and quote, And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God, God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And Ephesians 4.30, quote, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And 2 Corinthians 1.21, But it is God who establishes us together with you in Christ and who anointed us, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Now, we should also have a distinguishment between true assurance and false. <clears throat> the canons of Dort say that, quote, by God's just judgment, end quote, some are, quote, who causally take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it, but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen, that they become, quote, carnally self-assured, end quote, rather than having an actual assurance of faith. So how can an infallible assurance, that's the Westminster's language, and this carnal self-assurance be distinguished? Well, A.A. Hodge's commentary on the Westminster Confessions takes a stab at this question. He tells us that true assurance, however, can be distinguished from that which is false by the following tests. Number one, true assurance begets unfeigned humility. False assurance begets spiritual pride. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10 and Galatians 6.14. Number two, the true leads to increased diligence in the practice of holiness. The false leads to sloth and self-indulgence from Psalm 51.12 to 13 and 19. Number three, the true leads to candid self-examination and to a desire to be searched and corrected by God. The false leads to a disposition to be satisfied with appearance and to avoid accurate investigation. <coughs> That's Psalm 139, 23 to 24. And number four, the true leads to constant aspirations after more intimate fellowship with God. That's 1 John 3, 2 to 3. It is common for Calvinists to cite 1 John 2.19 in the case of those who either were falsely assured or who deceived others, knowingly or not, into believing that they were saved. Where it writes, quote, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, because if they had belonged to us, they would have remained in us. But they went out from us to demonstrate that all of them do not belong to us. So that is, unless there is some type of defeater 
for my experience of the promises of God and the fruits of, of regeneration, the fruits of the Spirit it, it listed uh, above in the various ver- verses and laid out by Hodge uh, in those four different uh, metrics, unless there's a defeater for that, unless I'm seeing the assurance that I'm uh, that, that false assurance begets false uh, spiritual pride, or that it leads to sloth and self-indulgence, or that I avoid being corrected uh, and searched by God, and I'm, and I'm uh, only satisfied with appearance, and I avoid accurate investigation, and so on and so forth, unless there's that, I have no reason, I have no defeater to doubt my inclusion in the people of God. So therefore, Calvinists teach that to be assured of salvation, you must look first to Christ, <coughs> to his merits and his promises, then to the fruits of faith that he has granted to you. It is not found by inquiring into the decree of elections, nor by looking chiefly to yourself. It is not necessary to be assured of salvation in order to be saved, but it is a good thing to strive for nonetheless. There are ways of distinguishing it from carnal self-assurance, and those who have such false assurance are mistaken about their salvation and should be rebuked and attempted to be cast back into the fold. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast as I gave some Calvinistic musings. I look forward to some of your responses. As always, if you have any um, compliments, complaints, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at blogspot.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or find the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining. Good night and God bless.